Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of The End of Sport, a podcast on capitalist sport, labor, and harm in sporting culture with your hosts, Johanna Mellis, Nathan Kalman-Lamb, and Derek Silva. If you're enjoying the show, please reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at endofsportpod, or check out our website at www.theendofsport.com, where you can find details on how to support the show via Patreon. With that said, we hope you enjoyed this episode of The End of Sport. Andrew McGregor is an American historian of politics, culture, intellectualism, and sport. He is a professor of history at Dallas College at the Mountain View campus in Texas. He is the author of several academic articles, as well as the founder of the really great sport history blog, Sport in American History. He is moreover working on an impressive three book publications, one of which is his dissertation turned book manuscript about post-war Oklahoma and football that we will absolutely be discussing today. Andrew, we're really, really thrilled to have you with us here and welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. So as someone living in the state of Texas, which has just really been facing some awful conditions right now with a snowstorm and sort of power failures, uh, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty pretty good. Uh, I didn't have much of an impact. My, my power was intermittent on Monday and Tuesday. And then since then, it's been good. Today, it's actually in the mid-60s. So all the snow is gone. And we people are wearing short sleeve shirts again. It's back to Texas winter. Uh, of course, the devastation is still impacting people, and I've actually uh, spent the last three days uh, doing some volunteer work, some long days, feeding the homeless and and providing warm meals and and gloves and hats and things to different people who need it. So even though the weather's back in the 60s, um, the impact of this storm is going to last much longer, particularly as the power bills rise and people are going to have to be paying you know yeah. hundreds of dollars more for power and that's going to come out of budgets like food and other things and so even though the storm is gone the economic impact is going to last for probably months yeah and I, like on i know we'll get into the uh, the substance of the show but earlier um today i was reading a piece on how jerry jones was sort of excited um yeah. by by the 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 newfound wealth more wealth that he has since um, the sort of devastating uh, winter storm. So like I, I've been just like to me, that's just the worst thing I, I could possibly imagine, like just getting excited and giddy about other people going through such catastrophe. I'm sure the, uh, yeah, I'm sure the sports uh, anchors here are going to say something. I haven't watched the news in a couple of days. Uh, Jerry <laughs> Jones has a lot of money tied up in natural gas. Yeah, used yeah. for a lot of homes here heat with natural gas and then a lot of our electric plants are natural gas and so the prices are going up he's going to make a bunch of money which people will probably speculate will he use it on the cowboys uh because cowboys is that's oh. just obsession uh, yeah the state, not just dallas as if that's like the the most important thing like how is this going to help my football team mm-hmm. it's it's an interesting we're going to get into a lot of these topics today, I think. Um, we're going to get into a lot of the issues and a lot of, I think, the the sort of untold history of not only like big time sport, but football specifically, and just American sport and, and the place of American sport uh, or of sport in American culture. So let's just get into it. As listeners know, we've kind of spent a ton of time examining American college football and its utter depravity when it comes to the pandemic and its sort of role within the intellectual, the cultural, the political, 
uh, and the economic exploitation of both the NCAA and as a system of sort of higher education. One thing that um, we haven't looked at enough, we've obviously on end of sport focused on the contemporary, right? We've, we've been very much like focusing on the today and <laughs> into the very near future, but we've really ignored the sort of history of it all. So in terms of, we have a historian in the room, someone who studies sport. Um, could you walk us through um, your work on the history of college football? Because kind of despite what colleges, what universities, NCAA, and many sports journalists would have us believe, nothing is quote unquote natural within this college football system, which we tend to think it is. Many apologists of the college football system tend to think like this is just the way it is, but it was created for a very specific reason and for very specific ends. Could you kind of walk us through what you and others have called the booster university and the sort of intentional creation of a college football identity and culture through the case study, through your work, through a case study of uh, the university in Oklahoma in the post-war and the cold war eras I have more to this question, but I want to just start there. Can you just walk us through some of your work in this area? Yeah, I wanted to start a little before my work because I start really in 1946, 1945. Um, but the system is in place by then for the most part. The NCAA system isn't in place, but the sport is already solidified by the 1920s. Um, and so there's nothing natural, which is absolutely correct. But college football was originally just sort of like um, it wasn't even intramural. It was just a bunch of people getting together and playing rough stuff like that. It was almost like a recess game, but at colleges and that, you know, the Ivy league started in the, the 1870s, 1880s. Um, and it became popular for people to watch and play. And eventually administrators were like, we need to control this because people are getting hurt. Um, but they also thought maybe we could make money off of this. And so there's a lot of work done both in college and even high school sports that say part of it was the, the idea of administrating and, and sort of reform brought in administrators to, um, to sort of shepherd the sport away from sort of this randomness that it was becoming a more orderly game. And this is where we get the, the invention of new rules and things like that. Walter Camp is one of the people who does a lot of this at Yale. He, he's one of the main writers of a lot of the rules. Uh, and, 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 and in this, as the sport gets really popular, college football wouldn't be what it is today without its weird alliance with the media. And, and, and sports journalism really takes off in the 1880s, 1890s. And this is at the heart of the circulation wars between the two big uh, the main, not just two, but big newspapers, particularly the New York Herald and New York World, which were owned by William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer, and 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 they introduced the first sports pages in the 1890s and 1900s as a way to boost circulation and, and reporting on sports like football, which was the main you know collegiate game, and it becomes more organized and it starts moving west and expanding in the 1880s and 1890s, and and really by 1900, just about every college and high school has some sort of a football team, uh, and so I, I say that because. The media is as much uh, important in this conversation or in the development of the sport and its popularity and its way of making money as the universities themselves. And so I don't think we can divorce college football from the university without explaining the media or, or understand it at the university without explaining how the media has always been an active participant in this sort of corruption. Um and so that gets us to really the 1920s, which is this golden era of sports with Red Grange and, you know, professional sports by then as well. Um, but the 1920s, at the end of the 1920s, there's something called the Carnegie Foundation Report of American College Athletics. And it sort of says everybody is using slush funds. They're cheating. They're doing all these awful things. 
to um, get an advantage to recruit players. They're not even students. They're using ringers and all these other things. And and it sounds awful lot like today in some ways, uh, but it says only like seven or eight colleges aren't doing this. And that's 1928. And then the Great Depression happens, you know, in 1929. And, and one of my interests in, in college football um, particular, or at least in what will become my dissertation project at, at Oklahoma, was I wanted to write um, about that moment. Uh, and and I, I wrote my master's thesis on Pop Warner and Jim Thorpe and Billy Mills and American Indians in, um, in boarding school. So I had this foundation in college football and sport history there. Um, but I was interested in, in doing more on Pop Warner because he's one of these early figures, these progressive era coaches that, that was really one of the first professional coaches and develops all these things. And he actually hops around and builds programs at multiple universities. Uh, so you could c- consider him an architect of this collegiate model. Um, but in 19, I think 1933, 1934, he wrote a piece for the Saturday Evening Post called Football's New Deal. Uh, and he said the Great Depression might have been the best thing to ever happen. Uh, he describes football as the Santa Claus of campus, giving all the money to these things. And he used these really interesting language. Um, and so I thought about like, okay, maybe I should get into that. I mean, you know, taking water at face value and why didn't this happen? Of course, uh, anybody who's been to graduate school knows that the, the creating a dissertation topic and, and crafting a dissertation is what my advisor calls a negotiation. Uh, and so that project would have been much more intense, a lot more research. And as an American historian, we don't have as much access to travel funding, especially when it comes to sports. Uh, so instead of answering the question, why didn't football reform in the 1928, 1930s, um, we start, I started thinking more about this. And, and he suggested looking at Oklahoma because Oklahoma had a 47-game winning streak in the mid-50s. And so there's this built-in narrative there. And, and it, it's part of getting away from that Cold War Steinbeck image to a – uh, a, a late 60s, 70s sort of blue-collar conservative Merle Haggard Oki from Muskogee image. And so the, the evolution of the Oki is sort of the hook in my project. Um, but what happens is in the post-war era, there's sort of a free-for-all. There's no uh, – because, you know, the Depression hampers down a little bit or they turn to football because they need to make up, you know, budget shortfalls and that and they turn to radio. And, and that's when radio becomes commercialized. And there's other scholars who've written on these things. Um, so – and – um, if you want a good overview, I should mention of sort of the history of the NCA and, and these reform movements. Um, I think Pay for Play by Ron Smith is probably the best overview of that. Um, and that, that's where I sort of started from. But to get to the post-war era, so after World War II, all these veterans are coming home. Some of them played a couple years of football, some, some of them didn't. Um, and they, in the, the uh, colleges decide that they're going to have a brand new four years of eligibility. And so you have these some players that you know are really good, and then you have these high school athletes coming back. And so colleges built these sort of amazing teams out of these veteran players in 1945 and 46 and 47. Um, and there was no really recruiting rules. There was nothing. And so there was this sort of free for all. And to give you an example of this, uh, one of the people I write about is uh, Lindell Pearson, who's this uh, – he was fr- uh, going to be a freshman in Oklahoma in 1946 – and he, there was a recruiting battle between Arkansas and OU, and and he really wanted to go OU, and the OU coaches found him a job, and so him and his girlfriend had this job working in a warehouse over the summer. August comes around, September comes around, and he doesn't report for camp. He doesn't enroll at OU, and they're really concerned, and 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 they and they talk to him about why aren't you here? And Liddell's like, well, I wanted to come to OU, but Arkansas bought my dad a brand new Buick, and now I feel like I have to go to Arkansas. And so what happens is a bunch of Oklahoma boosters raise about $4,000 in 1946, pay off the Buick, and then fly him back on a private jet to OU. 
And and that was part of the recruitment. And and they they create out of this the Touchdown Club of Oklahoma, which becomes this fundraising arm of the athletic department in a football at Oklahoma. And this comes out of, again, that era where there, there are basically no rules. Everybody's doing whatever they can to get a competitive advantage, to keep the kids at their schools that they think are the best, et cetera, et cetera. And that's really the starting point or one of the starting points of, of, of what I think of as sort of post-war uh, college football. And, and in that, we start seeing the evolution of the NCAA. So the NCAA has always been a discussion body, not a regulatory body, until about 1953. Uh, during the 1940s, there were there was something called the Purity Code, where they tried to like hamper down, but they couldn't enforce it. And then that gives way to the Sanity Code and Brown 48. And there's all these ideas of like, oh, hey, you need to behave this way. And there's debates between like the Pac-10 and the Big Ten versus the Southern colleges about who can can we offer scholarships or not offer scholarships. Uh, a lot of them didn't want to offer scholarships, uh, and so there's this even debate about pure amateurism there. Um, and then finally, 1953, and I, I know I'm giving uh, really broad sort of drops and we can go into details if we want. But in 1953, they finally come up with the probation system that they have today. And this is in response to the American Council on Education, who wanted to regulate college sports by threatening college accreditation. And college is like, no, 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 we don't want to do that. And so they finally agreed to have some sort of regulation method through the NCAA, which then isn't associated with uh, academics or accreditation at all. And so there was at one point, and I think that's really interesting, uh, that accreditation could have been tied to that. Um, but so today the NCAA doesn't really have anything to do with education. It's just about making money. Um, and, and again, another thing that comes through in the dissertation is this is also when in the early like 51, 52, 53 is when we see the rise of television. And so by 1953, 1954, we, uh, the NCA becomes a cartel to regulate television because they want to sort of protect small schools who won't be on TV and they want to protect the revenue. And, and they, they, they see this restriction of capitalism, ironically, as a Cold War protectionist policy uh, because creating and maintaining um, audiences and, and because they, they worried that schools would cancel football if they didn't make money. Um, and so they didn't want too much on TV. They wanted people to go to the games so they would pay for tickets because that's where most of the money came from here. Uh, and so there's this interesting dynamic about the Cold War and media and television that comes in almost simultaneously with, with the creation of probation and some of these other things. And so we Andrew, think was, was that actual was that the actual logic at the time or, or was that the like the narrative to to get it done? like to to create like the to justify the cartel and maybe i should reframe that was that like was the narrative that like we want to protect schools the real intention behind that or was the intention actually to create a system where you control the um on the the brand uh in, in terms of media I mean, that's a that's a hard question to answer. I mean, the official line of a lot of the debates are it's, hey, we were trying to help everybody else out. And, and you have coaches mm -hmm. that will buy into that argument. Um, and so I would say that there's a sliver or more than a sliver of truth to that argument. Um, but at the same time, you have several states, I think in Nebraska, Oklahoma, where the legislatures were trying to pass laws that would prevent the NCAA from back like um, hampering their cartel. Mm. Uh, and so like like the University of Oklahoma, like there there's a uh, state legislator, George Mavisky, and and he's very anti-NCA. He's like, no, Oklahoma football is a product of Oklahoma it, and we, we fund it through, you know, the state. And, and so the state should get all of its benefits and, and we shouldn't be, you know, sold out to the NCAA. 
Um, but the NCA and, and the university presidents will come back and say, well, if we don't go along with this, then everybody's going to boycott us and won't be able to play football at all. Mm-hmm. And so there's that bullying immediately that comes along mm-hmm. with that too. And and one one other thing I was thinking about while you were talking was was the, the sort of narrative of criminalizing or or making the athletes um, who are accepting these so called and I'm using scare quotes um, with my arms here like the perks of um, like like the car for instance like getting a car and a, and a flight what was the narrative that these were like bad apples in existence then. Or was it very much like we need to make sure that we have boosters to provide for these so-called perks? At the, from the Oklahoma perspective, it's a little of both. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they thought it was okay to give him a job and to give a job to his girlfriend to help him you know, afford to come to school and those things. Um, the cash payments weren't as, as big of a deal as much yeah. as it was, hey, we'll give you a job. We'll give you a summer job. Everybody needs it. We're going to hire factory workers anyway. We'll just give priority to an Oklahoma football person. Um, the car was bought for his father, not for him. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm sure Oklahoma probably did some of that too. But it's mm-hmm. bad when it's somebody else. It's okay when it's us. Yeah, it just seems like the NCAA and like member institutions have been wildly successful in yeah. – in in producing this image that you know cam newton his father accepted something and therefore he's bad and that has like in many ways that still is a sort of um stain on cam newton's career and it happened in college like the ncaa has been massively successful in that and i'm i'm just trying to kind of tease out where did that kind of begin i don't know if you can answer that yeah um, I think there's always been a lot of moralizing, um, mm. and this goes back to, I mean, we also have to think about college football and the NCAA are progressive era institutions. And so when we think about the American yeah. progressive era, we think about, um, you know, temperance and, and regulation and, and, and certain um, sort of degrees of moralism. If we think of like Woodrow Wilson as the president, you know, moralism is his foreign yeah. policy. And, and so there's always been this sort of middle class moral, like respectability politics that, that are associated that come out of sort of muscular Christianity and the respectability of college sports versus professional sports. Professional sports aren't seen as gentlemanly. Like um, that's why you need to be an amateur. And we can see this mm. happening with the Olympics as well. Like yeah. amateurs are people who do it for the love of the game. Whereas if you're a professional, then you'll you'll do anything to win and and you might not have the same ethics. And so they, they always think of money and, and compensation as being something that will sway your ethics and, and will sway your morals. And so that's coming out of really the eight... I, I, I guess you could point to sort of a muscular Christian, the YMCA kind of movement that sort of legitimizes sports that make college sports good and noble and sports like baseball and boxing that are professionalized and, and, and sort of more harsh being associated with sort of lower class mm-hmm. sports culture, which is drinking and gambling, which for the longest time have been forbidden surrounding colleges. And, and you know, in the yeah. last 15 years, they finally allowed colleges to sell alcohol at sporting events. And, and now we're talking about like leagues having, you know, fantasy sports and all of this. And so it's completely changed. But, you know, 120, 150 years ago, uh, yeah. that would have been anathema. Yeah. The other thing I want to mention is um, they are like ringers and stuff beginning in, you know, the condemnation in 1928 is, is very harsh. It's very moralizing. But at the same time, there's like, hey, everybody's doing it. And so, you know, we're going to call everybody out. But then we're going to realize we're all doing it, so who cares? And that's sort of what what I sort of perceive as the thought process of why they didn't reform a lot. It would have been too hard. Um, and, and as far as what you're talking about with Ken Newton, um, 
before like the 19, the mid 1950s, really the 60s, we're only talking about white people here. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. so, yeah, yeah. yeah there's, a, there's definitely a racial element to the Cam Newton side of things. Yeah. And I think with like with the entire discussion of like perks and so-called corruption in, in college sports, I think like only a certain um, group of athletes get the negative attention, whereas others it's kind of OK or, or at least shrugged, shrugged at. So I, I absolutely agree. I think we'll get into the racial component probably yeah, later like- on this show as well. And I don't want to make too much of a connection there. I, there, I don't mm-hmm. think the development of, of sort of probation and these rules in the mid fifties, that's not happening because of civil rights. Yeah. Uh, they're happening in, you know, 52, 53. These are debates that are happening from the forties on. We see some, I mean, there are some integrated teams that early, uh, but when you think about like the bulk of the sec that's happening in like the sixties and seventies, um, the fifties is sort of when we're getting in desegregation. Um, but I don't see those as uh, linked. Uh, and maybe I'm wrong, but I haven't seen any scholars point to that either. So I have some sort of basic historical questions because I'm just, I'm, I'm ignorant. And I'll, I've said this before, I'll say it again. I'm kind of ignorant about 20th century American history, even though I'm a historian. And when sort of when you reference sort of John Steinbeck's um, sort of vision or, or, or image of Oklahoma, that's kind of lost on me. So to kind of go, I hate to go back a little bit, but could you sort of explain kind of the, what that image was and, and, and the image that um, sort of University of Oklahoma wanted to portray about itself and sort of how that relates to football? Yeah. Um, and so this is where my argument is sort of perhaps novel. Um, but so John Steinbeck is, you know, the, he's a well-known author from the, the 30s. You know, the Grapes of Wrath is the book I'm pointing to. Um, but he also wrote, I think he wrote um, Of Mice and Men and some other mm-hmm. really solid books and, and they've become movies and things like that. And so The Grapes of Wrath is his book about sort of, uh, and it maybe not subversive, but it's, so people call it left wing. Um, and he's critiquing American society and he's showing the depravity of America, particularly Oklahoma in that region during the Dust Bowl in the Great Depression. And so the book comes out in 1938. It wins the Pulitzer Prize. And then there's a movie comes out, I think, a year later. And it wins, um, I think, the the Oscar for, for Best Picture. Uh, and it's a it's a, like a John Ford, who's a famous um, – one of the leading directors of that period – Anyhow, so so uh, when we talk about Oki, the Oki is somebody from Oklahoma. Um, if you if you read the book or or watch the movie, there they, there's part, portions where they describe Oklahomans almost subhuman. Uh, there's a very mm-hmm. vivid scene at the end, uh, and Okies are people who sort of flee Oklahoma to um, to go to California to look for work for jobs because the, the land is impossible. They are being squeezed by their mortgage companies, and so they're just leaving their farms. They can't even pay the bill. They're just going to leave and escape and and try to find a new life. And so, so there are these migrant laborers going to California that they'll do whatever they can. And and once they're in California, they're treated as uh, basically illegal immigrants of the 1930s, but they're Americans. And so mm-hmm. there's this weird parallelism there. I think uh, that I don't get into, but it, it strikes me as fascinating. And when I teach my students, I always try to bring that parallel out. Um, but again, uh, in, in California, the, the Okies are treated really bad. They're put into like, these little labor camps or they're, they're living in sort of these tent town kind of things on the sides of towns. They're driving the wages down. And so a lot of people don't like them because they're, they're creating economic issues. Um, but, the, uh, but there's this really vivid scene at the end where one of the characters is basically – she had like a stillborn child. Um, and she ends up breastfeeding like a really old man because he has – no way of getting food. He doesn't have teeth. And, and, and this image is, is for a lot of people, it's really disgusting. And, 
and and Steinbeck includes it, and and the, it's a narrative. It's not um or it's it's fiction. It's not real. Um, but he includes it to sort of show the links that people did to survive. But mm-hmm. Americans reading this think Okies are the, she's these depraved people, like they're they're you know they're subhuman as as how people view them, and and so they, this Okie stereotype for the longest time has been a very negative, almost a pejorative word to describe people from Oklahoma. Now the people who stay in Oklahoma. Um, aren't necessarily Okies, but the, I mean, the label gets attached to them. Steinbeck will later reverse course um, because in the Soviet Union, they would actually show this to show how awful America was and they would read the mm-hmm. book. And so um, Steinbeck actually, there's an interview around 1950 where he's on Voice of America, which was the American State Department radio. And, and he would talk about how the great, he actually was trying to show the fortitude, the strength of the Okies to survive. And so it's a testament of their strength of character to get through this, not um, necessarily a, a commentary on how awful America was, even though it really was a commentary about how capitalism had failed. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the, this book becomes really important, and, and it's a lot of people still read it in, or they, they used to. I don't know if we still read in in high school English as many novels, um, but it used to be one of those classic American stories. And so that story. Oklahoma wanted to get rid of that. Like, hey, if everybody thinks of us as these kind of people, that's not good for us. Uh, Oklahoma, of course, had one of the worst situations when it came to agriculture and the Great Depression. And so when they sought to rebuild their economy, they wanted to rebuild their economy politically, economically, and they wanted to rebuild the state culturally. And so those three sort of things, politics, cultures, and economics, um, are sort of what I try to do. And I argue in my dissertation that football helped them do that. Because the football team serves as a way to say, hey, look, we actually are tough. If you thought we were these degenerate backwards Oklahomans, well, now um, we're the best team in the country. We won three national titles mm-hmm. between 1950 and 1957. They win 47 consecutive games in the mid-50s. And in the late 40s and early 50s, they win 32 consecutive games. And so they have these massive winning streaks. They have these national titles. They have one of the best coaches in the country. And, and so they say, hey, wait a minute. We're not those people. Look at our football team. It's an example of the, you know, quote unquote, to use a business term, the quote unquote human capital of our state. Uh, and they start using this to recruit new businesses to come. And, and so I argue this is part of the building of like the Sunbelt Oklahoma. Uh, and it, it fits some of that Sunbelt narrative. And, and that's, you know, one of the other projects I'm working on is about the Sunbelt and sports. And so the, the, I use that as a, a sort of stepping stone. And then the coach that I study, Bud Wilkinson, becomes a politician. He works for John F. Kennedy leading the President's Council for Physical Fitness. And, and so you've got that Cold War element that, that sort of links with that masculinity, that, that respect for hard work, uh, that human capital idea, that fitness idea that comes through. So with the 40s and the 50s, it's all happening there at Oklahoma. And so football, to me, is part of that symbol. But it's also part of launching both Oklahoma and the football coach to the sort of national stage. Um, there's an article... I think it was from True Magazine in 1950, where where this is after Oklahoma's first national title, and and the, the, the article is called "How Does a Third Rate University Become the Best in in the Nation?" And they accuse Oklahoma of cheating, not with the touchdown club, but with their millionaires from oil money and all of that. And so there's always there's been this aura of spect of speculation about how did Oklahoma do this? It's a, it's fat. This is like all reminding me of Benedict and Benedict Anderson's idea of like imagine communities, right? Like that, that football was engaged as a political project to create this imagined or to, to alter, I think is the better word, right? Mm-hmm. To alter this imagined community around Oklahoma. This is like fascinating stuff. This yeah, is like, it was, go ahead. 
and that's that's where that that's where the booster university comes in. I don't know if we got mm. there yet. Uh, but the booster university is like the idea that, hey, we paid for this. This is reflective of our state. Uh, and so if you look at a lot of the Midwestern states, they have one, maybe two really big flagship schools. And you don't even have to be an alumni of that school or a student at that school to feel like a fan. And so that imagined community is, is become statewide and it becomes enforced because the, the, the only product of our universities that most people are aware of, that most people are really proud of, are their athletic teams. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Well, thanks so much for, for laying that out for us. Um, and, and I should say too, to listeners that, um, Andrew on his blog that we're going to get to later, he has a lot of really, really, really great sort of blog posts where he takes us, takes readers through different aspects of his research. And we will definitely be linking, um, kind of the ones that that relate the most to the, to the episode that we're doing right now. But of course, like obviously go check out on this blog. And you know, you, you've already we've already started talking a little bit about uh, the Cold War. Um, you've mentioned masculinity, and then we've also talked about uh, racism and stuff like that. And so, I'm wondering if you can kind of, as best as you can, kind of tie some of that together. And again, this is partly selfishly for my own benefit because I I'm very much learning about this myself. Um, and so, so what is the connection between the Cold War, um, civil rights, masculinity, and things like that that you found in your research? Okay. Um, I guess for me, the Cold War is mostly a backdrop than the foreground. I'm not a, I'm not a, I don't study the Cold War, but what I do study happens amidst the Cold War. And so the culture of the Cold War, which is this idea of masculinity, of toughness, of, of America's projecting a certain image abroad about democracy and all of these things. Um, that's the framework that I'm operating within. And, and within this, I didn't mention earlier. So race comes into my dissertation in sort of small ways. Um, basically what happens is they have the, this 47 game winning streak between 1940 or excuse me, 1953 and 1957 over, it spans over five seasons. And, um, in the middle of it, uh, he's, he's a freshman who's ineligible to play in 56 and then he starts playing in 57. So at the very tail end of the streak, Oklahoma will integrate or desegregate his its football team. They'll have their first black football player, Prentice Gop. And and so race becomes an issue here. Um, but the civil rights issue happens in a couple of different ways. Uh, Oklahoma is one of the universities that, that's being sued to desegregate its university, uh, first for the law school and the graduate programs. And then eventually it'll have to desegregate the whole university by the mid-50s as part of Brown v. Board of Education Part 2. Um, and, I, and the part two gets sort of lost in there, but that's really what what desegregates the, the four year undergraduate. Before that, most colleges in America uh, or most states had a, a black university in Oklahoma, it's Langston University, and and then they would have their white university and and, and maybe multiple white universities. And and that changes, you know, in 1890, there's the there's the second land grant act that creates a lot of the black HBCU land grants uh, like Prairie View A&M here in Texas. Uh, so there, there's a higher education story here, uh, but there's that civil rights. So it is is sort of in that backdrop here. And, and what I think about the Cold War and civil rights is is, is intriguing because um, one, we have these moments where African Americans are sort of fed up and they they start pushing back. And so we think about the 1920s and the Harlem Renaissance and the New Negro as a response to Black veterans coming home from World War One. And then we think in the mid-40s, we have a lot, and it starts in the 30s, but in the mid-40s, we have the acceleration of the civil rights movement. And, and the early phase of this period is more of a litigation phase. And so the NAACP with their grill marshal are suing a lot of different places to, to force desegregation. And so Oklahoma is one of these universities. Now, at the same time, 
the, uh, the same day, actually, that the, this uh, the desegregation is ruled, there's also one in Texas, and, and it's more widely known as Sweat v. Painter, which desegregates, I think, University of Texas Law School. And there's Sapul versus Oklahoma, and then there's McLaurin versus Oklahoma, which happened around 45 to 48. You have all of these cases coming out. So the University of Oklahoma, with the pressure there, starts admitting black students. Um, but what's different about Oklahoma versus, say, Texas, and I'm using Texas because they're big rivals, not just because I live here. Um, but Texas doesn't desegregate its football team until 1970, which is much later than Oklahoma, 1956, 1957. And, and, and one of the ways that I would account for that difference is because of Oklahoma's football success. Um, and, and so we can see how civil rights, and also because Oklahoma's in a different conference, the big six, big seven, which becomes the big eight conference, pressures Oklahoma because they're the only Southern member, where Texas is in, a, in an all-Texas Southwestern conference. Uh, where they have different sort of segregation rules. Um, but because of Oklahoma's success, uh, they're, they're able to address some of these racial issues earlier without the same backlash as they might if they were not a very good team. Um, and, and, and in terms of the Cold War, again, this backlash. Uh, so I talked about uh, the new Negro in the 20s, and then after World War II, you have a lot of pushback with veterans coming home from World War II. Um, well, in the 50s and 60s, you have a lot of athletes doing uh, military service in Korea and such, but also these global goodwill tours. And there's a lot of other scholars who've written about, you know, like Althea Gibson and others and, and track athletes going on these tours to, the, to Eastern Europe and, and representing America and, and showing American – how American democracy and freedom looks great. But then they come home and they see this sort of double standard uh, of how they're treated, particularly as athletes, particularly as like we're the face of America, but we're treated second class when we get back home. Um, and so by the mid 60s, late 60s, this creates sort of another backlash. Uh, so we're going to think about 68 and, and the Olympic Project for Human Rights and, and Tommy Smith and John Carlos in 68 Olympics. That I think is another sort of backlash to sort of that Cold War use of athletics. Um, I don't connect that in my dissertation, uh, but I think that if we want to think about those backlashes to sort of, you know, World War One, World War II, the Cold War, and we can see how there's a response with African-American communities and, and, and activism. Yeah, and you wrote in a, in a, a brilliant, uh, another blog post that we'll link in the show notes, obviously, that like, so there's a long history at the University of Oklahoma and and most universities of um, accommodating segregationist policies. And you wrote about this, you wrote about seating arrangements, you wrote about a, a variety of different um, arrangements that were like meant to uphold these, these horrifying um, policies. But you also talked about how the, the official kind of lifting of registrations or of, of, of restrictions, sorry, that barred black athletes from uh, and fans from becoming Sooners um, that when this was lifted, you and I'm quoting you here, you said both the stadium and the football team granted them access to the emergent Cold War utopia known as Bud Wilkinson's Oklahoma. Could you kind of explain that um, for our audiences who might be unfamiliar with Bud Wilkinson, what that kind of means? Um, yeah. And uh, you've talked about it, uh, but I, I, I think I just want a little bit more um, uh, specific uh, details for what that means. Yeah, that's a that's a line that I think I got uh, I got critiqued on in my dissertation defense for being too uh, rosy on. But <laughs> but so um, my dissertation was sort of from Dust Bowl to Dynasty, Bud Wilkins, Oklahoma, which was sort of my uh, that's the title of it. Um, mm. But I, I think of Bud Wilkinson's Oklahoma in the same way that people talk about Eisenhower's America, which is maybe yeah. another phrase I need to unpack. Um, 
But Bud Wilkinson's Oklahoma is this era where like, hey, Oklahoma's finally good. We're getting businesses coming here. We have the best football team in the country. Everybody's sort of full of pride. Like we're proud to be Sooners. We're proud to be Oklahomans now. Um, and that's starkly different from the 1930s and 1940s, as I described earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, African-Americans in Oklahoma never had access to that. They didn't even report on most Oklahoma football games in the black press until they started having a black football player. And so Oklahoma football didn't really matter to them. They didn't care. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so as soon as they have a black player, they, they, they are a part of that imagined community. And so we talk about imagined communities as, as sort of the booster university as, as a part of, a, you know, what does it mean to be a Sooner or a part of the Big Red, as they called themselves back then? Um, well, if you're black, you're not a part of that until you're desegregated, until you're integrated, because you can't go to the stadium. You can't be on the team. So why would we care? Why would we report on it? Mm-hmm. Um, and so to me, desegregation is important because it creates um, it creates an access that means they're a part of that community for the first time. Now, whether or not they felt welcome or, or equitable, probably not. Uh, and that's where I get the critiques, you know, and, and it's not really a utopia, but it's sort of compared to the, the, the Dust Bowl and, and the devastation of the Great Depression. The 1950s in Oklahoma seems like this is the good old days. This is when America was great, if we want to think about our former president. Um, and, and so and, and the other thing I call Bud Wilkins Oklahoma utopia because he was in Sports Illustrated all the time. Uh, there's these glossy images of how great Oklahoma football was, how you know people were reporting about Oklahoma and they had really influential um, politicians. Mm-hmm. One of the, uh, the creation of the FAA or the CAA happens and the guy who writes the FAA bill, you know, the, the Federal um, Admi- Aviation Administration. So, you know, like the, 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 what are the people who, um, like if you fly, the, like the, not TSA, but the people who make sure you don't crash in other planes. <laughs> uh, those people. I can't think of the word, um, but like one of the centers of the FAA will become Oklahoma City because of this yeah. pork. Uh, and so mm-hmm. there's this pig, you know, pigskin and pork is is something that I've talked about in other places. And and so when we think about you know building Oklahoma as a sunbelt city, as an economically upcoming city, uh, I mean Oklahoma, not just Oklahoma City, as the state in general. That's what I mean when I talk about the utopia of Bud Wilkins in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. I give a lot of credit to the football team as part of that change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, there's people who can critique that, and I'm sure you know <laughs> whenever the book is done, I'll get those critiques. Uh, but I think the importance of sport, of the, of the, again that idea of human capital, uh, of, of the branding, of you know just starting conversations. You know, they, they started in in um, in forty six, forty seven, going out and doing these tours to try to convince people to come to Oklahoma. By the mid fifties, they were coming to Oklahoma. They were going to a game, and then they were scouting places to build new factories and plants. Uh, and and but the idea of like how did Oklahoma, how did this happen, you know, or how do you win all those games was a conversation starter, and that's mm-hmm. what provided them an in for some of that industrial recruitment. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that that like I th- I think we would probably grapple with um, here is like pr- approaching that as a story of kind of progress um if i if we want to use that word rather than a story of the the horrific nature of like football success being the the driving force to convincing people to allow like desegregation right like there are two there are two obviously more complex stories than than just those two things but finding the middle ground there like which story to tell is Mm -hmm. like it's probably a very difficult thing as a historian, I imagine. Yeah. I mean, so in, in one hand, my dissertation is very positivist in the sense that um, you can see I 
show that Oklahoma football was sort of a, a good thing for the state of Oklahoma. And so we look at sport and society. Hey, look how much sport benefits society. I don't know if I always agree with that personally uh, in some ways because I think, you know, why does sport need to do that? Like that's not the point of a higher education institution. And and there's other things that we should be doing besides, you know, playing football. And, and, and because it was not integrated for the longest time period – it's just, you know, this white society doing white society things. And and so I think the race question is interesting, is important there, but also the question of, is this really what college football should be doing? Um, and my the fact that I show that it kind of works in Oklahoma is why so many people still do it today, because they have the same belief that it can happen. Whereas in all honesty, the, the Oklahoma was sort of catching lightning in a bottle. Mm-hmm. Well, in some of your work too, um, you have some really interesting pictures in some of these posts about like, even when the school is desegregated, that they put like ropes in classrooms to like separate people. So it's, and, and, and I know that like, you're not saying this, but a lot of people think when they think of desegregation, integration, they think of like, oh, everyone was allowed to go to classes and everything was good. And like, obviously it was like very piecemeal everywhere. But I think some of the images that you have on, on your blog are really interesting because it shows how piecemeal it was and how they're sort of figuring it out and how black students and black black athletes are really pushing for even more, right? They're saying, like, this isn't enough. Like, we don't want to be physically separated in class. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I think uh, your work has a lot of, like, nuances within, within kind of this broader argument that you're providing here. Yeah, I guess I would sort of like to differentiate the idea of integration and desegregation. Mm-hmm. Because you can integrate but not desegregate which is what happened over the first couple of years at Oklahoma. So George McLaurin was the first person who was allowed to attend it. I think he was a doctoral student in education. And he's the first one who was allowed to attend the University of Oklahoma uh, around 1948, I think. And um, he was the one who was literally sitting with like a rope in the alcove right outside of the classroom where he had like a 45-degree angle where he could sort of see the board. Uh, and they later argue in a, in a subsequent case that this isn't the same education because he's not engaging, particularly graduate education, in the same kind of conversations when he's sitting sort of halfway outside the room. And so in that sense, we can see that that's not equitable. And, mm-hmm. and they're integrating because they have to, but they're not desegregating the classroom. It's still segregated, but they're integrated. And so there, there is a nuance there that I don't think we often appreciate. And, and it, I even, you know, I, I use the two quite often interchangeably when they're they're not um, and the same thing with the football stadium. So Oklahoma didn't allow black patrons at their football games until they allowed black students. And so I think it's around 1949, 1950, they allow their first black students. Well, now if they're students, we have to allow them in the stadium. I don't know if they allowed non-students, non-African-American students to attend games. But because there was enough African-American students, they made a little section that was for them to uh, sit in and they roped it off and they created sort of things. Um, but I do, I do write in the blog post that they use sort of adhesives because they didn't, they knew the, the president of Oklahoma was somewhat progressive. He intentionally wrote rejection letters so they could be more easily, uh, litigated in favor of the black students. Uh, so the way that he wrote, he was sort of, even though he had to be the defendant and the one who rejected them, he was sort of trying to be an ally by saying it was due to race, not do some, cause he didn't have to say that. Um, and, and so he made the decision and, and some of the regents made the decision that we're not going to permanently retrofit the stadium to, uh, to exclude blacks. We are going to make it temporary because we know this isn't going to be forever. Um, and so they're very cognizant of, hey, this isn't going to be forever. But they also didn't want 
you know, they didn't want people to walk around and see that. So they would take it down after the game because they, they were sort of worried about the image because a lot of what Oklahoma football is described with the industrial stuff and, and what they're doing with them, they're very image conscious. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so there, there's an image thing there as well as like, hey, we know this isn't going to be forever. Uh, we aren't racist. We're just enforcing the law that is racist. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for the clarification on, because I, again, not as an American historian, I, I tend to not always know the difference between desegregation and integration. So I appreciate that. And and also like your point at the end about that, this is all about image, or at least that image is a huge part of this. Because um, I think, again, like you kind of made that contemporary link earlier. Um, I think I think that's really appropriate here. And and sort of one thing that I wanted to follow up on is sort of the, the figure of Bud Wilkinson, because he's a huge person in your work. Um, and so I was sort of wondering, like, if you could explain a little bit sort of about like how he's successful, like how was he able to be successful? And I know that you do some work on how he had like a TV program and just how he became like a bigger and bigger figure. And so how did he become um, such an important political and cultural figure in Oklahoma? Yeah. So that's sort of the age old question is how did Oklahoma win? And this is what, you know, the people who think I study sports from an ESPN point would be like, Oh, can you tell me about the plays that he ran and how he ran his practices? (laughs) I don't really care about that, but there is some innovation there. Um, So he, he's one of the first few folks to run the uh, what's called the split T formation, which he learned from Don Farrow when he was working during world war two, coaching some world war two, world war two football teams. Uh, he implements that, but he also um, he believes in um, this is also I should point out the year that I study is when there are um, you don't you don't get a sub as often and you had to play both ways. And so he believed that you keep it simple. You run the same play maybe 100 times in practice. And so it becomes muscle memory. And so he didn't really think about being innovative in terms of his play calling as much as that. Hey, we're not going to make mistakes because we're going to practice this until it's perfect. Uh, and, and he also believed really in depth with conditioning. And, and so, you know, Oklahoma, they they practice in the heat, they create. Um, and so as far as I know, and there's more to his methods than I am aware of, um, but a lot of it comes down to that. And then he's just a, a really dynamic sort of charismatic person. He gets the Oklahoma head coaching job and he's 35, which is super young. Um, even today, that's considered really young. And, and I think, it, you know, I don't know if there's very many coaches that are that young that become head coaches. And um, when, so he was first hired as an assistant and, and when he go and the head coach that he worked under for one year um, brought him along in the interview because he thought it would help him get hired. The board of regents and the president of Oklahoma liked him so much. They required the new head coach to hire him as an assistant, which sort of ruffled some feathers. And then when the, the head coach that he worked for, his name was, um, oh, it's escaping me, uh, but he leaves after one year goes to Maryland because he's trying to get more money out of Oklahoma and Oklahoma's like, just leave because we want your assistant to be our coach anyway. And so there was something sort of about Bud Wilkinson that everybody liked. Um, he was a good athlete. He played uh, three years of varsity football, golf, and um, I think he, he played a, a hockey goalie as well. Uh, he played three sports at Minnesota. He won the Big Ten medal, which goes to outstanding academics and athletics, uh, senior student for each Big Ten university. Um, when he played at Oklahoma – or excuse me, at Minnesota, he played quarterback in line, and uh, he's a captain – and he did play on desegregated teams, so he had experience playing with black teammates in the 30s, uh, which is notable for his later, you know, desegregation. Uh, so he has that, and then he he goes and plays, um, or goes and coaches a little bit at, at Syracuse, and and that's where he first learns. So he has a master's at Syracuse in English, and that's at the time where Syracuse is developing radio, 
Uh, and so he takes some courses in radio as part of his master's. And so he gets familiar with media and he actually does uh, his own radio show when he's at Syracuse. And, and this is stuff I'm, I'm writing an article about. So it's interesting to think about how he has this weird training that makes him very different than most football coaches. I should also note that his dad, he's, he grows up sort of middle class, upper middle class. His dad owns a mortgage company. His dad always wants him to come back and work for the family mortgage company. So he has that sort of business mindset. And he always thinks coaching is sort of a frivolous, unnecessary activity. And so Bud Wilkinson always tries to, to justify what he's doing to his father in these weird ways. I think that's why he becomes so political. Um, but, but because of that, he, you know, so he's this, you know, northerner who's got a master's degree in English, who sings in the church choir, who plays the piano, uh, who, who he's always described in the sports media as being sort of professorial. You know, he's probably more in uh, more comfortable talking to professors than other coaches is how people describe him. Uh, but because of his success on the field and his personality, he develops clinics. He develops um, eventually he'll develop one of the first coaches shows, which is like a 15 minute program. Uh, and so during the um, the the era where you couldn't watch, they couldn't air live football games on Saturday. A lot of a lot of schools would record the games and they would play the game film or an edited game film on Sunday afternoons or a weeknight. And Bud Wilkinson would do a 15 minute show that would go along with that game film. And then in '53, that becomes the first TV show. And then in '54, he creates sort of a a system of. Um, or a syndicated system of, of television programs aimed for youth. And he talks about football, but he also talks about um, other sports and how to train for them. And so he's really interested in fitness and toughness and sort of these Cold War ideas. And because he has this sort of fatherly intellectual demeanor to him, soft-spoken, he's considered very handsome, um, he becomes sort of this huge image, not just of Oklahoma, but then of Cold War masculinity. And, and this is what launches him to become involved in politics uh, particularly with Kennedy. And then once Kennedy's uh, uh, assassinated, he feels like there's, he can do more for the world than just coach football. And, and, and so that, that sort of explains how he becomes a sort of political figure. He runs for Senate in 64, loses that Senate race, uh, but he's involved in politics behind the scenes. He's a, uh, he's a, um, an advisor for Nixon. He works in the, as a special consultant for Nixon and but before Watergate, he quits by like 71. So he's not involved in any of that. Uh, but he also works with, within the Republican Party and, and uh, for 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 the Bush in the eighties. Uh, I think Reagan appoints him to some positions on uh, something or other. I don't remember the exact titles. Um, but he has this really fascinating career. Uh, but he doesn't really coach again. He retires or he quits when he's like forty seven years old. Um, and so he he's one of these legends that won a lot early and then just called it quits and tried to do something else for society. Um, most people will know him if, of a certain generation because he was a, he was also one of the first uh, former coaches to be a color commentator on ABC and then later ESPN. Uh, and he does that for really from the 60s throughout up until like the 80s. Um, I th he dies in 94. I don't think he does any calling in the 90s. Um, but he's a really interesting person. So when, when we get into the intellectual question, uh, he, to me, sort of personifies that intellectual coach. One of the things that I've been thinking about through our entire conversation is the place of Oklahoma in um, the college football history. Uh, like, I think a lot of people would be surprised to, uh, or surprised to learn of the massive impact that the University of Oklahoma has had on contemporary football. And I'm sorry to, to be the sociologist in the room that like brings it back to the contemporary, but between the history that you've, that you're talking about here 
And things like the NCAA, the Board of Regents of the University of Oklahoma, a famous 1984 um, decision that really reified um, and reinforced this idea of amateurism. Um, it seems like the University of Oklahoma was one of the most successful, or if not the most successful um, football program to kind of replace an old or traditional system of like, let's call this true amateur football um, with this like new system of massive capitalist exploitation um, that is like largely remained in place today. Do you get the same sense when you look back on the history of the University of Oklahoma that it's had a kind of disproportionate impact on the production and the sustainability of the massively exploitative uh, NCAA college football system? Yes and no. I mean, Oklahoma isn't an old power. I mean, today we probably consider Oklahoma football a traditional power. But as I mentioned earlier, in the 1950s, they were sort of the new kid on the block. Um, And so when we think about them shaping college football, probably from the 50s onward, yeah. But before then, they didn't shape the foundation. And so I think you have sort of pre-probation NCAA and post-probation NCAA. And they're a big player in post-probation NCAA. Uh, I think they're the third university ever put on probation, by the way. Uh, So they've always had sort of this antagonistic relationship there. Um, Had certain senators and and representatives in the Oklahoma legislature gotten their way, they would have sued probably in 1954, not 1984. Uh, but the university president had a, a very strong pull and influence. Um, and so they, they sort of got their way there. Um, there. He actually, that university president's name is George Cross, actually wrote a memoir about, uh, it's called Presidents Can't Punt. And it's about his relationship with sports. And it's a really fascinating um, read. And he he's also famous for giving us the quote, um, I want to build a university team of which the football, or a university of which the football team can be proud. And at that point, he's actually talking about how uh, the legislator wouldn't give him the money to build, to like pay faculty. At one point, the University of Oklahoma had the lowest faculty salary in the big six or the big eight. And uh, and so they're like, why do you need more money? He's like, well, I want to build a university that the football team can be proud because everybody's proud of the football team. But he wanted the university you know, to actually be able to educate them. And so he was in some ways commenting on how big the football team had become, but he was more commenting about how people were sort of neglecting the university for the sake of the football team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the, there, there's some disagreements on what that quote actually means, uh, but the context was in sort of a legislative session. And so Oklahoma has always been sort of caught up in this negotiation between what should higher education be, where should college football fit in. And they mm-hmm. found, a, I guess, an arguably okay balance during the 50s and 60s, and then once you get into the 70s and 80s, that's really where things get sort of crazy. Uh, and, and that's where you have the, the, the lawsuit in 84 and then deregulation of TV, which creates sort of the arms race that we see today. Um, one of the ironies here, and this is going to come back to something I said earlier, is the University of Oklahoma football stadium today is, is Gaylord Family Stadium. Uh, Gaylord, the, fam- the Gaylord family was the ones who owned the Oklahoma City uh, Times or uh, the Oklahoma City Oklahoman, the, the big newspaper. They also own several radio stations and TV stations. And so it's ironic if we talk about the history of college football, of college sports and media, their stadium is named after the family who owned the media company. Mm-hmm. 
which shows how it's all connected, or at least it's partly all connected, right? I mean, as, as listeners know, and anyone on Twitter, and Andrew, you know this, they were always kind of railing against the sports media and, and how it's connected to like the exploitation of athletes. So I think you're you're giving us like a good like historical primer on that also. Um, and you know, one thing that, that you've been mentioning and that we we absolutely want to get to is sort of um, how um, how do I say how sport history fits into and, and is a site of intellectual history. Um, and now we've done a lot, and Andrew, you've done this too, of a sort of critiquing of the anti-intellectual strain that really seemed to dominate dominate a lot of the coaching culture, coaching culture, and not just in football at all, and and many other sports. Um, I I know this in swimming, and I, and I think it's kind of unfortunately endemic to a lot of sports. Um, so I definitely interested in hearing more of your thoughts about how or sort of what your work tells us about how we can analyze sport as a site of intellectual and or anti-intellectual history yeah so i will I'll, I'll make two comments here or probably more than two but i'll start with two the first <laughs> one is um intellectual history is sort of seen by a lot of people as sort of this snobby like study of like really smart nerdy people who don't have a social life and and we would just read their letters mm-hmm. and see how they came up with these like brilliant ideas like evolution or or whatever, like, you know, an Einstein or something like that, or you're, you're talking about intellectuals that are like political philosophers or something like that. Mm-hmm. We don't think about intellectual history as sort of being everyday people. Um, mm-hmm. and, and traditionally, in at least the subfield, I don't want to get too deep into historiography, but, it, you know, there's cultural history and there's intellectual history, and they're sort of taught as two sides of the same coin. Um, mm-hmm. But I think there's, a, there's um, I've gotten involved with the, the Society of U.S. Intellectual History, or USIH, and and they have they've never defined this, and so I'm going to define it for myself. But this notion of what we might call a new intellectual history, the idea of thinking of everyday ideas, everyday people of having a history of of thoughts being sort of pervasive and influential in culture, um, and you know cultural history, cultural studies does this. You know, if we think about the development of cultural studies in the '90s, particularly with cultural theory and a lot of these things. Uh, they have a big influence on in how we do this, but but we're still we're we're thinking about corpuses of writing or of statements or of of sort of media that we are reading and we're analyzing. And I think at the, at the 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 reading of the text is you know what we do as historians, but there's an intellectual element there that I think we we need to identify as intellectual as not just being cultural. And I think even though we're doing a very similar, if not the same, work. Uh, intellectual history is sort of taking the everyday person, a coach who we sort of see as anti-intellectual. Okay, let's call them anti-intellectual and let's look at what they're saying and what they're doing as being a part of um, sort of promoting or, or or spreading certain ideas. And so it's both a history of an idea and, and, and a uh, sort of a discourse that we need to analyze, not just as cultural, but as important because these ideas influence the way we act. They're often tied to education, which we definitely think is a form, education history is a form of intellectual history. Uh, and, and sport history, to me, at least the way I practice sport history, is also very tethered to the history of higher education. Um, and so to me, I've come to this sort of late in the game. I always thought of myself as a social cultural historian, Lately, I've become more interested in sort of intellectual history. I've always thought of myself as a political historian as well. Um, but politics are really about ideas and policies. Mm-hmm. And those, uh, again, are sort of the domain of intellectual history. And so I think if we think about sports and regulation, uh, ideas like the NCAA, there's intellectual history, like the idea of the student athlete, right? That mm-hmm. is a term they came up with that everybody uses. So it's a it's sort of a cultural touch point for any sports fan now. Anybody will use the term with sort of innocently, not knowing that it's a politically loaded term that was crafted to avoid sort of paying workers' compensation to athletes who died 
while practicing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that I think has an intellectual history to that term. There's a how did that happen? Who made that happen? What are what were the arguments? Those debates? Those things need to be sort of brought forward. I think that's really important to understanding how we got to where we are. And so one of my arguments here is it's not to critique sport history because I love our field and, and my colleagues in it, but I think we need intellectual history will help us sort of recenter and better explain how society became what it is today through these sort of ideas and these influential people. And so labeling them anti-intellectuals or intellectuals uh, is one way of sort of saying, hey, wait a minute, they had important things to say. Absolutely. And it just sort of, as you're thinking, I'm just like nodding my head, like, yes, yes, yes. Um, and I'm thinking too, and you may know that know more about this than I do, but I'm thinking like Ashley Farmer and like people mm-hmm. sort of in related fields who are, who are arguing for an expansion of like, what is intellectual history? Who are intellectuals? Like I went to a like zoom talk with uh, Tiffany Florville, who wrote, who wrote about whose book just came out about Afro Germans and, and what post-war West Germany. And she talks about like quotidian intellectuals. And so I think there's, there's, it seems to be part of this part of this sort of broader push to really expand and also that the field and also sort of make it less less maybe elitist it seems um and really sort of expand that idea and you know i'm also thinking i was like trying to find the book on my shelf but i couldn't um because that's always how i kind of remember names um but the um matthew Llewellyn and john gleaves's book on the rise and fall of olympic amateurism i mean that is and they i think they define themselves as more like philosopher like sport philosophers um like the, the the two scholars do but there that is very much like an intellectual history of like how this idea of amateurism within the olympic movement like developed and then like rose and then fall and sort of how the international olympic committee how their how and why their ideas changed about and how they implement it in different ways which which is very 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 similar obviously to what you're talking about in terms of the student athlete yeah, and, and thanks for bringing up Ashley Farmer and some of that work because the African American Intellectual History Society uh, is another group that I'm not as involved. I've not involved with at all, but um, I know some of their scholars as well. Uh, and so that group, along with USIH, both of them sort of formed as societies around blogs. Uh, USIH mm-hmm. started a blog in 07, became a society I think around 2010, started hosting a conference around 2013. Um, the the African American Intellectual History Society started as a blog. Around the same time, we did maybe a little bit earlier, um, and then they've reformed it into Black Perspectives, which is still their blog, and they also have a conference and awards and all these other things. And so um, there, yeah, this idea of the new intellectual history, which is definitely the everyday person as intellectual, as you know, everybody has ideas and influences and things like that. Um, I think that is really what I would call the new intellectual history, um, and it is definitely um, – both decolonizing what is intellectual history and 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 sort of making it broader and more inclusive uh, and less elitist or snobby. it's It's not just you know white men anymore. while we're having this conversation, I keep thinking about like the the same old rhetoric that we often hear that's just like politics don't belong in sport. Like, yes, we can critique all of that crap for what it is. Not only is sport political, but like, we need to move the the discussion to something even more structural. That sport itself is a political project. Everything about sport is a project of governance, of state building, of inequality. It is, by definition, founding the imagined communities through that that we exist and that we live. And I think like 
one of the things that I often hear from from people in my own network that aren't sports are just there and we should like just be and enjoy them for what they're worth. Um, and they're there for like us to like forget about our everyday. And I really like push back on him and I'm finally getting him to think that like sport is everywhere all around us. It is the reason we think about crime in particular ways. The thing that makes us think about music and culture or one of the things I should say, one of the things that makes us like internationalist beings to, to understand what like say Canada is it's literally everywhere. And I'm going somewhere with this. I know I'm talking about a a big, long spiel. But one of the things that really came up over the summer, this past summer in the college football world, was this like great debate, I'm using scare quotes again, this debate over whether college football should be played. And you had a hand in this debate. You you had a hand. We on the end of sport have had a hand in this debate um, publicly because... You wrote a, a spot-on critique of another piece that was written and published in Inside Higher Ed by um, Matthew Mayhew from The Ohio State University um, and someone else, I believe. I, I don't remember the other author. But they wrote basically that we need college football, that like college football is so important to us that we need it to, you know, get over these turbulent times with COVID-19. We're all dealing with so much that we like need college football. It's fundamental to us, which of course this line of thinking has been critiqued on this show, will continue to be critiqued on this show and has been we've we've launched into massive Twitter campaigns countering this critique. And you did as well. So you wrote um, uh, a piece critiquing um, this um, uh, Matthew Mayhem um, uh, piece called Mythic uh, Misguiding, Misguided View of College Football, calling this piece um, a sort of misguided uh, uh, attempt. And, I, I, and we agree with that. But one particular quote stood out to us on this show, um, and I want to read it off and get your thoughts, just generally speaking. So you said, quote, during a moment when our democratic institutions are played plagued with anti-intellectualism that denies basic facts, dismisses scientific data, and denounces the role of experts, one has to wonder how this college football helps our democracy. One might argue it does quite the opposite. What did you mean when you were sort of constructing your critique of that piece? And what kind of... um, led to you writing that particular line okay um i guess like you guys i get on twitter and i get angry and i tweet a lot <laughs> um and it, it's especially when i'm isolated that you know i can't go out and just rant to somebody I, I don't teach sport history anymore so i'm not indoctrinating new liberals i'm just kidding I, you know that's what they think <laughs> i do right? um but 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 i think um what, what i'm thinking in this in this piece was like this guy is a professor of higher education. You know, mm-hmm. Ohio State is one of the bi- the people advocating for this. But like a lot of my colleagues in sport history come out of Ohio State. They used to have a really great sport humanities program. They have a great program on sport and society at that university that mm-hmm. shares all sorts of amazing articles and tweets all this stuff. Um, and this guy seems completely oblivious to any of that. Yeah. 
And and so I'm like, okay, first off, like it, he also made it sound like um, nobody's really studied this or that we all agreed. I'm like, wait a minute. And so he basically overlooked an entire two or three fields, academic fields that have been saying the opposite things that he's been saying for, I don't know, at least 50 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the North American Society's Sport History, which Joanna and I are, are – um, uh, members of is celebrating its 15th anniversary, I think next year, 2022. Uh, so I know that organization at least has been doing this for 50 years. And, and one of its founders, Ron Smith has been like the biggest critic of college sports. Like he's made a 50 year career out of it. You know, mm-hmm. he's retired and he's still writing books about how Penn state needs to be shut down. Uh, kind of, I mean, that's not what he says in the book, but you know, he's, you talk to him in person, he, he, he'll give you a, you know, he, one of the, the things that inspires me from him and, and, and it gets into this is that he's never intentionally used the word student athlete in any of his published work. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so I've always sort of strived to that. And so when we think yeah. about this argument, we think about the idea of student athletes as being essential employees, which is what Matthew Mayhew's argument was. I was just like, uh, no, <laughs> not at all. Cause they're not. I even remember the paid. Twitter exchange that we had. Yeah, they're not even getting paid or any of this. And so I was just very like – I first off, I felt like somebody needed to stand up and say, wait a minute. We've been doing this. We've been saying this. Your podcast has been doing it. I was doing it on the blog for a long time. Maybe not as political. Like a lot of mine was more research than mm-hmm. uh, commentary. But I do a lot of commentary on the blog as well. Mm-hmm. And and so I, I, I've been involved in this and, and, and most of the people I know that study sports have uh, – I say most because I know a few people who don't who don't have – you know, entrenched views or, or they're not going to say anything publicly or they actually wanted football to come back. I know a few sport historians who told me that uh, they were excited about that. And uh, I won't mention them, but I know them. Um, and that's okay. Like everybody can have their own opinion. But the, the bulk of us who study this, who do this for a living, feel very similar about this is wrong. This yeah. is putting people at risk. This is going to create disasters. We already we've already been saying this before COVID with yeah. CTE. Uh, if you haven't read Kathleen Bachinsky's book, uh, "No Games for Boys to Play," like it's brilliant. You yeah. need to read this book, and it, it talks about all of this stuff. And then COVID happens, and so we're yeah. already having this conversation. And then COVID happens, and I'm just like, wait a minute, dude. No, let's, let's so like let's let's educate you a little bit. And that was. You know, it was a little ego trip for sure. Like we all have that. And so I was like, "Hey, I'm going to write this letter, and I'm going to tell them what's up." Yeah. And and, and I I think I talked to you guys before I wrote the letter, and I think uh, I think you read it, Derek, before I submitted it, mm-hmm. uh, just to make sure that it wasn't you know too out there, and 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 you know give me some edits and things. And and so this particular line, um, you know, college, how does it, it doesn't advance our democracy? And and this becomes this comes out of my work on anti-intellectualism in sport. Um, Sport as the opiate of the masses, as some people say, you know, to sort of paraphrase Marx as religion is the opiate of the masses, right? Oh, I Um, thought Nathan was not on this show today. Yeah. uh, (laughs) I'm I'm not going to go too much further into that. But uh, (laughs) but again, like we think about that, we can think about, okay, well, we think somebody like um, Mike Gundy at at Oklahoma State, not the school I study, but, you know, same state. Um, He... He's wearing an OAN, OANN shirt mm-hmm. um, in, in April. You know, he's been spouting, you know, but things about liberal snowflakes and, 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 and decrying sort of um, athletes who want to transfer, who are wanting rights because they don't like him. They want to leave all these yeah. things. And then you have, you know, a couple of weeks before this came out, you had, I think, uh, Chuba Howard come out and wanted to leave 
and wanted to distance himself from the program. And then eventually yeah. they record a video and come back. And so you have all these like BLM things happening. Uh, and then you have the COVID and then you have the people pushing and then you have the CTE. So all of this just boils up into this, like, wait a minute, they're dismissing scientific fact about CTE. Now they're dismissing about COVID. They're, they're not listening to any of the experts of us as historians, other people, or, or sports critics, sports study scholars, however you want to identify us. Um, and then you have those folks who are medical professionals and, and uh, epidemiologists and yeah. all these other people. And then, you know, um, I think it was it um, the guy who was at I, I write about this and I probably actually cut it uh, in the article on anti-intellectuals. But there was one coach at North Carolina, I think Larry Fedora, and, and he basically denied that a fight happened at the end of a UNC game. He's like, it just didn't mm. happen. But we cut it on yeah. video, dude. We saw it happen. <laughs> and so like he's denying basic facts. And so college football's anti-intellectual is doing this. And then uh, in the in the 1950s and 1960s, some of the coaching quotes that I read talk about like, you know, if you want to debate, you go to have a political science class. We don't debate on the football team. My word is authority. And and one of the things that I've come to yeah. find, at least in the 50s and 60s, and, and even today in a little bit, you know, football is being the last defender of, of discipline. It's the last fortress on campus. Uh, we see this a lot in reaction to like, you know, Vietnam protests in the 67, 68, 69. Um, and and so the idea of like football is being uh, inherently authoritarianism or authoritarian in the leadership uh, by many of these coaches. And so we want the and, – and that's why I think, you know, there's sort of that Trumpism with the football coaches and we yeah. – you know, that's a whole other discussion. Um, but but all of that sort of boils over in this idea that it's essential because that means that Matthew Mayhew drank the Kool-Aid. And, 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 and I wanted to make sure that we say, hey, wait a minute. That's not true at all. We've been doing work. We've been exposing this for 50 plus years. And, and, and so that was the, the part of that letter. Those were sort of the things that I had in mind when I wrote that particular sentence saying, okay, you know, football actually doesn't do that. It, it's dismissing all of these things. And so it's actually doing all the things that are hurting our democracy. You know, how can we have free debate? If we're not listening to experts, if we're not listening to scientific data, if we're not, you know, following human f basic facts, um, then we're, we, we're basically denying, you know, the social contract, right? Like, so when I teach U.S. history, I really like to emphasize, or U.S. history one, the first half of the survey, I like to emphasize how America is really you know, going back to John Locke, that social contract. And, and if we want to make, you know, the social contract, we're going to make everybody, you know, sort of, we're going to do what's good for our neighbor. We're coming together to give up, you know, certain rights to make our society better. But if we refuse to listen to people telling us, hey, we should do this and make society better, then we're denying the whole point of, you know, democracy, the whole point of, of that social contract to improve everybody's lives. And, and maybe that makes me more socialist than, you know, democratic. I don't know. Um, but again, that's, that's sort of what's going through in my mind when I'm responding to this. Um, and, and, you know, his idea of why do we play sport is what you were talking about with your father. Um, yeah. And my idea is why do we play sport is probably more in line is like, hey, we're doing it because it's good for the money. And, yeah. you know, there's other reasons to play sport. I mean, I'm, I'm a former athlete. I coached. You know, I like sport. I watch sports a lot. And even now I watch sports, which probably shouldn't. I feel guilty about it. Um, but they do serve an important part of my life. Um, and I think they, there is importance, but we can do them, uh, in less harmful ways. And I think college ball is the worst of all of the sports yeah. in terms of the harm that it does for everyone. Yeah. And certainly we would agree on this show. And I, and I think like one, 
one of the corollaries of that argument is is like beyond democracy and, and social contract. It's it, I, I think and I think you're getting at this is that college football is just harmful for society um, across almost every level. Certainly people enjoy it. Certainly people like it. I'm not saying people don't like watching football or that people don't like playing football, but we have to like have serious conversations about why we're doing this and whether or not we should be um, massively exploiting people, um, contributing to a variety of social inequalities, um, and basically stealing wealth from very specific people, uh, groups of people. I, I think we've talked about all of those things um, throughout this episode, so I don't want to just rehash that. But one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was... I wanted to get your take, and you mentioned this earlier. You mentioned that this is a professor of higher education. Um, and I immediately looked at that when I saw this piece. Like, this is a professor of higher education. Not only that, but at the reputable institution that is the Ohio State University, right? And I, I'm, I'm kind of mocking um, the, the university here. But, like, it is a huge powerhouse in college football has vested interest in supporting and propping up this system. Um, and surprise, surprise, this professor of higher education at this university is producing such a uh, sort of an apologist take for the continued and the massive exploitation of athletic laborers during an unprecedented health catastrophe. And I'd actually argue that more importantly, what his original piece did was justify that exploitation with reference to the pandemic. So on this show, we've been highly critical of this, um, but we've been particularly critical of higher education itself as needing reform. This isn't just about a professor at Ohio State University. This isn't just about Ohio State University. This isn't just about the NCAA. It's actually a problem that spans across higher education in the U.S. and in, to, to some degree in Canada. Do you see or, or did you see the piece in Inside Higher Ed as simply a bad take? Or is it, is it kind of reflective of something more insidious about the role that, it, that higher education plays in propping up the system of harm and exploitation? Yeah, I saw, I mean... He wrote it. I think one of the his co-author was his, one of his students. And okay, okay. That to me was was really disheartening. I mean, one you know, a co-authoring is fine. That's not something I have done much of. Um, but like the idea, of like, hey, I'm going to wrap my student. And he apologized. He wrote another letter after mine that got published, and he apologized to his student for for tying him in because his student is getting all these critiques, and it's going to hurt yeah. his student's reputation. Uh, this guy's a full professor. He's he's good. That's important uh, to know. Yeah. And and I so I that. think um what I thought about this is there's two things. One, um I used to always believe that education is the key to solving a lot of problems. We just everybody just got educated, we'd be fine. But as I started becoming more involved in the study of race and ethnicity, I became aware of scientific racism and how that was once taught yeah. as facts. And and so when we think about the history of education and we think about education in general as being a solution. That's not always true. And so this guy is teaching future administrators, I presume, in a higher education program, because that's usually the people who enroll in those programs are going to become administrators of some sort. Um, and so because of that, um, what he's teaching, his education is, um, he's 
sort of continuing what you were talking about, that system, because he's saying, hey, this is okay. I don't know if he even teaches class on this or if he's just a sports fan. I didn't go that in depth into like his course load and his research. Um, it didn't sound like he did much of anything publishing in terms of the history of sport. But I was really upset because of this. And that this is my second point is that he's perpetuating this as a professor, teaching people who become administrators. We're then going to continue to be doing this. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this is how things like racism continue on because they just learn it. You know, if, if administrators just learn this is how you're sort of acclimated to like the club or whatever. Uh, that to me was what became really upsetting to me. Um, it's like, hey, wait a minute. You, if you're going to be a higher education administrator, I think everybody who becomes an administrator in higher education probably should take a history of college sport course. Uh, if you're going to be a higher education, because we're going to tell you this stuff, and you're going to be like, oh, okay, maybe I need to think about this. And and in response to this letter, I got uh, an email from a member of the Drake Group, and I don't know if you guys are familiar. The Drake Group is uh, this advocacy organization that wants to reform college sports, and they're not maybe as um, they're not as radical, I guess, as, as you guys and on the podcast uh, and some of their policy ends, but they're, you know, they, they, they stopped short of full payment, I think. Uh, but they, they wanted to do, they, they have like lobbying and, and they've like a lot of recent laws, they use a lot of the Drake group language. And, and so I've gotten involved with them a little bit recently and I'm going to do some history work for them. Um, but the idea with that is, okay, you know, one of the people I talked to in this group was a former coach and administrator and, and all of a sudden he saw the light. And, he, and he, he's become very uh, involved in, in this group and, and trying to do a lot of this advocacy. Um, and it takes years for people to be involved in this before they realize what they've been doing themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 and so I hope that my letter, if it didn't wake him up, it woke up some other people who's like, wait a minute, I've been doing this. I'm an administrator. I'm a coach. I'm a professor thinking about these things. Um, why am I supporting this? And, and it might, might, might have been that aha moment. Um, again, maybe that's just my ego. I don't know. <laughs> but these, again, are some of the – so how can we reform higher education? Well, we got to think about reforming the curriculum. Yeah. Um, of course, we have academic freedom and, and there is no one right truth way, I think. But there are ways that I think we can sort of wake people up to, to be more critical because all this is about being critical. Uh, you don't have to come to the same conclusion that I do. But if you're thinking with yeah. your eyes wide open, if you're being critical, then I'm okay with that. Yeah. And, you know, I think, um, I think to your point here too, and this, this also leads into the next question, but I have a little bit of an aside before we get there. Um, I think the whole purpose of a lot of what we're doing and what you're, what you did with your piece and what you, you've been doing for a long time, what we do in the sport is to sort of help people wake up. Cause I do think that they're legitimately for, for a wide variety of reasons. There are lots of people in higher ed that simply have not given college sport or sports in general, like very much thought at all, right? And, and and we've sort of talked about this on Twitter of like why why is sports studies, uh, why is sport history not sort of more re well recognized? And Derek, you can sort of speak to whether sports sociology, like I don't know how sports sociology is viewed within the sociology world, but I know within history there's always kind of like a well, you know, the regular the rest of the history field doesn't take it seriously, and and like I have friends that do like are historians of American sport and. 
uh, search committees will say, oh, well, you just do sport history. You don't really do African-American history or you don't really do history, which is not true at all. Um, so it's sort of part of this larger thing of like there's, you know, higher ed in general doesn't think about sport within kind of an intellectual way, which maybe Andrew is sort of your, your work on sort of making it more of an intellectual history could maybe help fill some of that. Um, but there are a lot of people that just simply don't think about it. And I've had a lot of like friends reach out to me and be like, oh my God, I've never thought about these things until I read your pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I do, you know, I think there's a lot of value in, in all this sort of collective work that we're doing because there are people who are unintentionally kind of contributing to it or implicated or kind of however you want to say. So, I mean, the, the work is just, it is just really important. Yeah. I mean, like sport is typically like the, the trope is that like sport is the like anti-intellectual activity, Mm -hmm. right? Like that sport and, and critical thinking. And I think that's what, what Andrew, you're kind of getting at as well. Like that, we need to introduce more critical thinking into the sports world. And to answer your question, Jay, like the, the sociology of sport is very similar. Um, and I, and I don't say this from a place where like, Oh my God, nobody's reading my work. I'm not winning awards. I'm not getting grants like type of thing. Like I I don't care about any of that, but sociology of sport is still this kind of niche um, niche and and I think that that actually says a lot about how we view sport in the context of a social structure that is racist that does produce systemic racism that promotes white supremacy that promotes a variety of forms of uh, exclusion that has historically supported and reinforced um, settler colonialism all of these things we've talked about and if we don't focus on sports complicity, complicit, complicity, sorry, I can't speak apparently, then we are ignoring, I think, one of the main modalities through which all of those things happen and, and are kind of propped up. Sorry, another tangent. Um, in, if I can in, add one thing. Uh, one of my responses to scholars who, uh, and I had this lot of personal one-on-one conversations, is I asked people, uh, if they can think of a category of analysis that sport doesn't intersect with. And so yeah. far, nobody's been able to come up with one. Yeah, yeah. Because sport talks about religion and race and gender and, and in economics and business and labor and and all of these different areas and, you know, transnationalism. And and so if you can think of a category analysis that sport doesn't cover, I'm, I'm interested. But, yeah. but sport <laughs> is a way of analyzing just about everything is it, you can relate sport to. Uh, and so that's my answer of why I'm relevant. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is actually a really good transition to this next question, though. Again, we've sort of been dancing around. Is <laughs> is is your contribution or and sort of your position as a public intellectual? And this has been something that you've been involved in for many years. Basically, Andrew, since I since I met you, um, it is um, the, the work that you've done by starting the Sport and American History blog. And I've said this in other episodes, but honestly, one of the main reasons why I got on Twitter is because my husband was on Twitter and he was like, there are some people that do sport history that are on Twitter and there's this blog. And he was like sending me some of the blog pieces that he came across and he was like, you should, you should get to know them. And so Andrew, actually you're one of the people that I like wanted to get to know. And I remember I was like, oh, he has such a big Twitter following. So, and this is like 2015 or something. So 
I think maybe you'd already started the blog. I guess you'd already started the blog by that point. Um, but just to kind of throw some of that personal thing out there. Um, and, and, you know, through this blog, this is where um, you and many other scholars have shared like snapshots of research and sort of teaching with digital audiences about U.S. sport history and sort of sports studies broadly. And you do book reviews and things like that. And we see a lot of obvious overlap. And you've already mentioned two other blogs that started around the same time as you. Um, and then also, I mean, we're sort of at a different, we do that also, but using a different medium on the end of sport. And so we'd love to hear some more about what were your aims of starting the blog and, and also where do you see it heading in 2021? Yeah, so I, I started the blog in 2014. Uh, I think May 1st was the launch date. So it's been over five years. Um, I will mention it's not as robust as it was the first two or three years. We, we were putting in a lot of work publishing one to two pieces a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we're lucky to get a couple a month. Um, and I can explain that in a minute. Um, but I, I started the blog because I, I started like basically around the time I was getting ready to go do my dissertation research and starting to work on my dissertation. Um, I think I did my exams in like October of 2013. And so that summer I did my research at, at Oklahoma and then that fall, I taught a class and then I started writing. Um, and so this is the point where you're like, hey, I'm studying sports in it. And actually, I went to Purdue for my doctorate, which is the, they've graduated, I can probably think five or six sport historians. I, my advisor was Randy Roberts, who's a well-known mm-hmm. sport historian. Um, and so I was lucky with my master's and my doctorate. I had sport historian advisors who published in the field. That's not common in our in, – in, in, to get a, in a history PhD to do what we do. Um, and so I was in some ways in a very for- lucky situation, but I didn't have any colleagues on campus at the time who studied sport history uh, in my department. Um, there, uh, Cheryl Cookie, sports sociologist also at Purdue. Mm-hmm. I didn't really yeah. know her. I still don't really know her actually, but she's in the American studies, uh, kinesiology sort of situation there. Um, so we didn't have a lot of sport historians there. There's there, We taught some classes um, and I actually got the chance to teach a course on the black athlete in the African-American studies program there. But again, that's because they didn't have other people to teach it. And so they hired a white guy to teach in African-American studies, which was a weird experience. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, well, that's a conversation for another day. Um, so I started the blog because I wanted to reach out to other people. I wanted to, you know, part of it was writing group of support. Uh, part of it was because I was jealous. I was getting involved with the USIH group. I, I'd met several of them and I'm friends. I go to that conference. It's one of my favorite conferences. Um, and, and so I was like, well, we can do this with sport history. And I think I was like talking at, about it at a bar with a friend of mine and he was like, just do it. And so like I went home and like made up of this thing and I like put a call out, I think on Twitter and a couple of people responded like, Hey, yeah, I'm interested. And they ended up becoming co-editors. And so I, the, the blog never would have been successful without Lindsay Piper, Andy uh, Linden, and, and later Kat Ariel, who basically is the one who's running it now. Uh, she's the book review editor now. Uh, Josh Howard was also one of our early editors who did a lot of, of good work for us there. Um, and, and so the blog has fallen off. But originally, it started out as a spot for all of us. And you notice a lot of the contributors were graduate students yeah. because we were writing. We were trying to get you know ideas out there, talk to other people. Um, and I think part of the reason why it's died off a little bit is because we're all early career. Uh, so we mm. have jobs. Some people are trying to earn tenure still or, or tenure track. We don't have tenure. You know, a pandemic as well. Yeah, that too. Uh, <laughs> but we started dying off probably around 2017. So I think um, idea, the idea of sustaining a blog um, where, we're, where a lot of our stuff became social commentary, less than research. 
as historians, there's only so much research you have in the bag before you can get back to the archive. And you don't want to give it all away for free on the internet because uh, then you can't publish it in journals or in books. Uh, and so there, there was this like, what can I put out there? What I can't put out there. I never thought of that. Like a lot of my dissertation is on the blog. Um, I think I ran the dissertation through plagiarism checker and the blog came up for large parts of certain chapters. <laughs> um, but it's fine. I, I got, I got, I, I got my doctorate. Uh, I don't think I can take it away now, <laughs> but it's all my own work anyway. Um, mm. but the point is, is that there's that back and forth about what can you put out there, what you can't put out there in terms of sharing research. Uh, when, when it comes to the social commentary, particularly during Trump, you know, I did a couple of like roundups, like within the first year, I was like, Hey, here's Trump in sports and what's going on. You could do that every week. And, and it just became impossible. And then a lot of people started doing it. Like, I think we were one of the first outlets to really do this with sports. And now, you know, you can you can publish. There's a lot of op-eds that people are publishing. And, and I'm more power to you. And you're getting a better audience than we ever got. But I think because people are like, well, we can do here at your blog. Or we can do, you know, Made by History of WAPO. And and once I started doing Made by History, I started writing less for my own blog. Um, and and so I think there the, the challenge there is keeping up with the news cycle writing something that's relevant, uh, knowing that our audience is relatively small to other audiences. So is our audience the public or is our audience other sport yeah. historians? You know, at first it was a little bit of both and now I'm not sure. I think most of the traffic comes from people assigning blog posts to students mm -hmm. uh, and online classes and things like that. And so we 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 initially were really good at that. Um, but then a lot of us, you know, matriculated on in our career. And so the blog... That is all to say that the blog is not what it was, and and in some ways I get nostalgic and, and sort of sad. Uh, so I don't know where it's headed in twenty twenty one. I'm hoping to write a little bit more. I say that, but again, I'm also <laughs> hoping to publish things uh, yeah. that will count for something. Uh, and I've been a big advocate of getting blog work, public intellectual work, to count. Uh, my my article in the Journal of Sport History, I think twenty seventeen was about blogging and how blogging started and a sort of a brief history of blogging. And then I, I about how there's debates at like OAH and AHA about how blogging should count as a scholarly activity. How do we do that? Uh, what is its impact? You know, the, the idea of even journals now are starting to look at impact factor. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, what does that mean? And, and we don't have great traffic, but it's not bad. So it's sort of, you know, it's hard to sort of balance that. And so blogging was primarily... Uh, a selfish activity, I guess, for me. Uh, but I get a high out of like writing. Like I really like writing the mm -hmm. thousand, fifteen hundred, two thousand word pieces. Like those are pretty easy for me to pump out in an afternoon um, because you don't have to cite everything. A lot of it is just things that you've learned. It's like writing a lecture. Uh, and and so for me, writing short sort of commentary pieces are fun. Um, but I don't have the time to do that every week or every other week anymore. Uh, whereas in when I was editing it or when I was writing a lot, I, I think I have the most posts of anybody on the blog, not not trying to brag, just because for a long time, I felt personally pressured to have consistent content. Uh, mm -hmm. Now I don't feel that pressure. So I'm not consistently pumping out content. But if, if you look at my posts, I've written about just about every sport, uh, a, a lot of different issues, just because I was trying to get things out there, trying to get people to think. That's not sustainable. Um, finding what is sustainable is hard. Uh, and so this question about sustainability for public intellectual projects or, or just public intellectual activity as uh, as a normal way of life is, is tricky because it's easy to be public intellectual when you have ideas, uh, a project, a certain research that you're trying to advocate for. But as historians and as most scholars, I think we have seasons of publication and we have seasons of research. Uh, and we all have seasons of teaching too. Uh, but 
you know, if it takes, you know, pe- people publish a book, if they're lucky every 10 years, right? Uh, some only publish one. I'm, I'm not saying, but like if you look at the R1 publishers, you know, every 10 years is, is pretty good. Uh, and so if you're only a public intellectual for like t- those two couple of years after you publish your book, what are you doing the rest of the time? Uh, you're doing mm-hmm. research, you're doing other things, you're reading. Uh, and so I think we in the age of the internet have become where we're almost constantly trying to like say something about something um, where we don't always have to. And so I've gotten away from some of that pressure. And this is something I've thought a lot about the last couple of years is I have a lot to say, but what I have to say isn't any different than what a lot of you guys have to say, because mm-hmm. we all are saying the same things. Uh, and so I've in some ways stepped back some, but I would like to get back into it. Um, but trying to find your angle, because you have to have your angle. What, what, why does somebody want your take versus somebody else's take? Uh, and you guys have done a good job here on this podcast of sort of branding what you do as a certain style of public intellectual, public, public intellectual activity and a certain style of, okay, this is the kind of critique we are going to expect from them. Uh, and so we know what we're going to get here and we're going to come for that. Um, our blog, as a bunch of people, it was it did a group blog, not an individual blog. It's all, its strength is its contributors. Mm-hmm. And, and and finding consistent contributors who want to do it is is challenging because of all the things that I've just said. Um, and so what does that mean going forward? I'm not sure. We've done a good job of maintaining the book reviews. So as long as Kat is willing to keep doing that, I think we're going to keep doing book reviews for a long time. Uh, I'm always welcome to publish anything. If you, if you send me something, if I have a, a day or two, I can probably get on the blog pretty quickly give you some comments. I don't do a lot of strange edit editing. I don't do peer review. I do like, I'll read it and I'll offer some comments. And that's usually about it. And sometimes I don't have comments because I'm either not an expert or I just think it's good. Uh, and so our blog is a pretty quick place to like put something up that you want people to read that you need a place to host it. Uh, and that might sound pretty amateur because it is. Um, but that's sort of how it started. And that's how it's always kind of been is like, here's an outlet that you can get your voice out there. Uh, we don't yeah. pay anybody, uh, but if you do a book review for us, you usually will get the free book. We usually send it to you, we mail it to you. Um, so that's sort of the blog in a nutshell, sort of why I started it, how it's going. Um, but it's it's one of the things that got me a lot of interviews when I first went on the market. And and I kind of, I get sad because it's not what it is. So like, I can't stake myself on that anymore because I'm not doing it the same way it was. Mm-hmm. But but it is, it's one of my uh, one of my biggest accomplishments. I think the first time I went to Nash, was 2016 and the blog had been around. So everybody had heard of me, but nobody really <laughs> met me. Uh, they're like, oh, you're that guy. Okay, we know you. Why haven't you come to Nash? She's like, well, I don't have travel funding or, or something. You know, I had, yeah. I had reasons, but like the whole idea of like Nash and, and all of that, like it just, um, yeah. I, uh, I, I remember, sorry, I'm going to interject, Derek. I remember going to a Nash and seeing you all like uh, the, the blog people like in, in a circle, like talking about the blog and being like, oh my gosh, they're talking about the blog. Like, I'm, I'm totally nerding out right now, but I just like have these <laughs> vivid memories of just like wanting to shoot for like what you all were doing. And, you know, to, I think to your point about like, whether you can sort of hang your cap on it for job interviews. I mean, they don't know, like a, a search committee, yeah. are they going to like look at the blog traffic? I, I don't know. You know, I, I guess I think from a search committee perspective, like they don't really have the time to be doing that. Um, just to kind of, I don't know. I, I still think you could, you could, you could show what it demonstrates about your ability, your ambition to do that sort of thing. So that's just kind of my thoughts on it. A, a little, uh, a, a little aside there as someone who's sat on several search committees, if you are on the market or if you are considering going on the market, 
Um, the committee does not read your materials in the detail you think that the committee is reading. <laughs> in my experience, uh, both like on hiring committees, but also like on the market myself, like it's just that's not the way it works. So, so I, I agree, like pump it up because I, I love the blog. The blog is ussportshistory.com. It's an awesome blog. There was just, um, I was just reading uh, about the Mark Cuban stuff um, and mm -hmm. like your your reflections on how how and why we should treat this as a moment for critical thinking, which I thought was awesome. So now that I've mentioned it, I'm going to link that in, in the show notes um, as well because I think it's a, a, an important read. And I wish we had time to get to that. So I don't, I, I, but I'll save it for the, the listeners to, to go up and read. But I did want to close with um, a question that we ask a lot of people on this uh, show. You've probably heard it if you've listened to the show, but we're really interested in how different people put on their critical thinking hat and their sports fan hat, like how people negotiate that, I think, kind of inherent tension. You've mentioned it several times in this in this podcast episode already, like this intention or this this tension between being a sports fan on the one hand and being like critical of sport as a institution, as a as a sort of thing that reproduces various forms of inequality. And, and like I like you feel guilty, even if like sports are on the television now, like during the midst of a pandemic. So I'm curious to get your take. How do you negotiate that inherent tension? Uh, and sometimes I don't. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I do. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll start with, you know, I was a cross country runner in high school and college. And then I did a, a year as a graduate assistant college coach, but I was at the NAI level, which we gave some scholarships, but it's need based. And it, it's it, the NAI is very different than the NCAA. The NAI, the National Association of Intercollegiate Athletics, it's mostly small colleges. Um, it's it's similar to D two in the sense that we have like similar competition level, but it, I would say maybe it's a hybrid between D two and D three uh, for NCAA because uh, we have um, scholarships. Um, but I, I got exposed to you know a lot of that. I decided I didn't want to be a coach because I didn't want that lifestyle. You know, traveling cross country, indoor, outdoor track. You're you're gone ten months a year. Uh, you're recruiting. That's no way to spend your 20s uh, or your 30s or your 40s. It's not a way to spend life personally. So the coaching lifestyle never appealed to me. Uh, I love sport. Um, when I was an undergrad, I wrote uh, one of my first sport history papers on um, Roman history, actually. Uh, my, ling my academic language, even though I'm a modern American historian, is Latin. Uh, and, and that's just because I had taken so much of it that they counted it. Um, but but I was interested in, in sort of sport as a tool of Romanization. So I looked at like the palaestra and the exercise ground in, in Britain. And then I later wrote another paper on like like milers and how they like reflected Kansas culture. It was really boosteristic and, and bad. Uh, but eventually I wrote like my, my senior thesis on the history of track and field at my school. Uh, so I was always interested in sort of institutional style history of sport. And, and so I guess that's always been baked in. Uh, I also like fell in love with the archive and we had an on-campus archive. And so I just like got involved in that. So the public history stuff has always sort of been baked in as well. Um, but, but then as being a coach, like I coach cross country and track, nobody cared, even though track and field used to be considered a major sport, not a minor sport like it is considered today. Um, 
but we don't have, we probably don't have time to get into that, so I won't. Um, but so those supporting experiences sort of led me that both as a scholar, beginning as an undergraduate, and as a as a sort of a professional when it came to coaching, and uh, also sorted through one of the things I did as an archivist intern was I found the 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 old files from the faculty athletic rep- representative to the conference from my undergrad. And he happened happened to be the secretary of the conference, so we had a lot of documents. And so I went through a lot of these documents from like the 30s and 40s. Uh, and so I've sort of seen what they produce. And and that really got me interested in sort of college sport. And so I've always been kind of a college sport person. Uh, I like race, so I did a lot of stuff in Native Americans in my master's. Um, but, but once I got out of coaching, I went and did a master's degree. And my master's advisor was a former provost who had been, you know, he had helped hire athletic directors. And then he, once he got done being provost, he was like a president for a year, uh, interim president for a year, and then he went back to faculty. And and once he went back to faculty, he started writing sport history. Uh, he wrote a textbook. His name is Richard O. Davies. Uh, he's a, a textbook that I think there's three editions of. And I helped him with some of that work in, in the teacher's manual. Um, but he became really cynical and really critical of the NCAA. And and he was a political historian first, and then he later became a sport historian. So that, again, that also sort of informs this. So I'm giving my academic genealogy because I think this helps explain um, how I reconcile things. Uh, so on the one hand, I'm a sports fan. I played sport, but I was always critical of football players because I was a cross-country runner. They got all the money. We got nothing, you know, that kind of thing. And so I had that sort of mentality of like us versus them. Uh, so I guess it's sort of obvious why I would study football. Uh, I've always been sort of a default hater when it comes to like a, as a fan. So it's you're either on my team or I hate you. And that's it sounds petty because it is. Um and so I'm a sports fan in that regard. So it's easy for me to be critical of anybody unless you're my team or you're my favorite athlete. Uh, then I have sort of this my, myopic viewpoint. Um, and, you know, I've get, I gave up in the NFL for several years and then my team drafted Patrick Mahomes. And so now we're really good. I hate Native American mascots. Um, but my team is Kansas City and they have a Native American mascot. Uh, I want them to get rid of it. So I'm very clear about where I feel about that thing. But again, so there, there's this really hard to reconcile both um how do i do that um it's it's by ranting on the blog it's by ranting on on letters like that i mean if i make myself clear on twitter like this is how i feel i'm always going to be a little bit of a hypocrite it's just i don't know if there's another way to not be because sport is so much part of american conversation it's part of our culture it's part of who we are you know the first thing you do when you meet somebody from a different city like oh are you a fan of this team are you a fan of that team like i'm from kansas city people are like are you a royals fan i'm like Yep, I am. And so that, that's a conversation starter. You know, I wear a Royals ball cap. It's a conversation starter. Uh, and so I think there's in some ways it's really hard to sort of divorce that because it's part of our identity. It's part of our imagined communities. You know, I went to Purdue. I actually coached or not coached. I taught some current Olymp- uh, NBA players. And so like I wear a Purdue shirt. I talk about that. That's a conversation I have with people. Uh, but at the same time, I, you know, I feel really bad about being a part of that exploitative system and benefiting from it. Because to me, it's a cool story. Hey, I, I, you know, I taught it, uh, an NBA player their history course, but at the same time, they were being exploited while I was doing that. And so I was part of the system. To to me, is kind of fun and novel. And as a fan, like, yeah, look at that, look how cool I am. But it's at the same time, it's like, oh my god, I'm a part of this system that exploited them. Uh, and and so I don't reconcile that always the best of ways. But I think. This larger question, and this is something that came up when I was planning. Um, so I'm doing a Nash workshop on intellectual history and sport in May. And one of the things that come up when I was putting it together was this idea, 
I don't think we got any papers on this, but there's a lot of sport scholars, sport studies, whatever field we're in that study sport that are former athletes or coaches that became academics. And the sport to academic pipeline is somewhat novel. And it again speaks to the intellectualism of sport that is sort of overlooked. Uh, and so I think that's another topic that I would love to see more worked on is how do these sport athletes, um, these sports professionals become, or practitioners, I think is the word that we were going to use. How do they become scholars? How do they become intellectuals? Um, and I think that's a really important thought line that sort of ties a lot of this together. Um, and we can see that with some of the advocacy and the public intellectual work. Uh, you know, Jay Billis was a athlete coach. Now he's a media member, but he's also one of these people who tries to you know push back against some of this stuff. Um, Most he of the time, very well, <laughs> yeah. Like, like he, he's a he's a you know like like all of us, he has problems reconciling course, yeah. his yeah. self and his, his income with the, these things. Um, but I but I think he's another sort of testament to this pipeline. That that it that we can all sort of understand there is this really challenging dynamic uh, with reconciling who we are, our imagined identity or community or whatever, uh, yeah. where we get pleasure. Like, what do you do when you're not working? You know, or or am I just you know working when I'm watching sporting events? That's what everybody thinks. Oh, you watch ESPN for your jobs? Like, sometimes. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. This has just been such a pleasure and like really great to to learn more about your fascinating research. And just thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you are enjoying the show, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod, or check out our website at www.theendofsport.com, where you can find details for our Patreon, every dollar of which goes back into the show. Thank you for listening.